Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Just west of St. Ignace in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, there's a narrow road leading down to the shores of Lake Michigan. Nestled among the sprinkling of small cottages, houses, and modern waterfront estates along its path are a few noticeably older structures. There are even a couple of old hand-hewn dovetailed log cabins tucked back in the surrounding woods that you can spot if you look closely. These historic buildings are remnants of Gro Cap, a small fishing village that dates back to the mid-1800s. Nearly two centuries prior, however, the land was occupied by approximately 1,500 Adawa who fished the surrounding blue waters for their main source of sustenance. The Gro Cap Cemetery that can be seen from US 2 was originally part of that now lost tribal village that spanned its way to the Lake Michigan waterfront. Just as what was become the fate of most of North America, the entire Grocap area that at first rightfully belonged to the indigenous Ottawa tribe was gradually lost to the French, English, and later Americans as they fought for and ultimately claimed this area's bountiful land and seas as their own. It is said that high on the bluffs above Grocap that lead to US 2, there once stood a French fort that predated even Fort Michilmackinac. Although at least four centuries have now passed since the area was first inhabited, the Grow Cap Cemetery is still used for burials to this day. One of the most noticeable structures you see while slowly driving along the curvy shoreline road named fittingly enough Grow Cap Road is the now defunct Old Sacred Heart of Jesus Catholic Church that was completed in 1919. Up until that time, the locals had to travel, usually by boat, to the nearest church, which was located in St. Ignace, or wait for traveling priests to make rare, unpredictable visits to the village of Grocap for religious services, communions, burials, marriages, etc. The church, that looks much older than its years, faces south towards St. Helena Island and the lighthouse that defines its borders. St. Helena Island located about two miles from shore, right in the middle of the Straits of Mackinac, once also had a small, thriving fishing community around the same time that Grocap was officially founded. People from the two sister villages often interacted socially. Even if it's just for a moment, whenever I pass through that area of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, I always make it a point to try and stop by that old church that for whatever reason just seemed to attract me right from the very first time I made my way along the shores of Grocap almost 20 years ago. Thankfully, I've had many afternoons to laze around the grounds, sometimes eating apples found in the trees of the surrounding yards when in season, other times just quietly enjoying the peaceful setting. I also have always been intrigued by some of the other older structures in Gocap as well, especially the small farm located just to the west of the church. The small colonial-style farmhouse and even smaller annex look as though George Washington could have once stayed there. The two main structures are whitewashed, pristine, and obviously very old. Since the farm is a private residence, I'm always respectful of the owner's right to privacy, but that's never stopped me from checking out the structures from afar. About six years ago, I had a client in my jewelry store, and as I was preparing to arrange for the delivery of a gift for his wife, I noticed his address on the sales ticket, Grocap Road. My immediate question was, where on Grocap do you live? Well, do you know where the old church is, he replied. Yes, I said, in anticipation. 
Well, I live right next door. I'm thinking to myself at this time, is it on the left or on the right side of the church? Well, you mean the house on the right? No, the farm on the left. Well, he and I hit it off and soon became friends. I told him how drawn I'd always been to his home. He had invited me several times to visit so he could share some of its history with me. 2016 was the year that most of the Great Lakes were covered in ice. In the early spring of that year, the Straits of Mackinac were still frozen over. So I took advantage of the fact and made plans to walk across the ice with my Siberian Husky to St. Helena Island and tour the grounds around the lighthouse. I had always wanted to make my way to the island and this was a rare chance to do so by foot. To make a day of it and to have a place to actually depart for the trek to the island, I arranged to have lunch with my new friend and to finally see his farm. I was greeted that spring Sunday at the back porch of the main house. Within minutes, I knew why I had been so drawn to the home. It was quite literally a time capsule. The farmhouse itself is actually one of the oldest in the St. Ignis area. There were secret hiding spots under floorboards that I was shown from days long, long gone. The original shingles and roofing from the mid-1860s were still visible in one of the side rooms of the old house. There was even almost a complete post office in the living room dating back to at least the 1800s. But it was a small set of scratches I noticed in the window that really intrigued me. Looking closer upon instruction, I was able to read the name Blanchard that had been etched into the old wavy glass, fittingly enough, with a diamond wedding ring. Blanchard, Blanchard, why do I know that name? I kept thinking to myself. Have you ever heard the story of Isaac Blanchard, I was asked? The landmark case of Pond versus the People Isaac Blanchard was the son of the original owner of the home and had grown up in the farmhouse. And I mean he really grew up, eventually topping out at 6 feet 7 inches and over 240 pounds. He must have just barely been able to fit into the home. As a young man, he began making his way west, where he, along with dozens of other fellow fishermen, would gather to work the shores of Seychois, where the waters were bountiful producing very sizable catches of whitefish and lake trout for the fishermen during the summer months. Another of those fishermen making the journey to Seychois was Augustus Pond, who came in the summer of 1859 with his family, including his wife and three children, one child still just a baby. Together they came by rowboat from Mackinac Island, 75 miles away. Think about that just for a second. Traveling in a small rowboat on Lake Michigan, the water's still frigid, with three small children, your wife, and as many supplies that would fit into the remaining space, and rowing for days and days, sleeping along the shore when you became too exhausted to go further. Once the family finally arrived at Seychois, they only had a 16 by 16 foot wood cabin to call home for the following summer months. By midsummer, and for no apparent reason, as Pond went about his strenuous daily routine of fishing, long, long hours, sometimes into the night, in order to gather as much food as possible for his family to live on in the coming winter months, and hopefully a little extra to be used as trade. Well, Pond began to be bullied by not only the Goliath Blanchard, who was famous for his enormous strength and temper, but also by two of Blanchard's friends, Joseph Robiliard and David Plant, none of whom were aware that the unfortunate events that were to occur over the next few days 
would lead to national and even international legal precedents. The first incident began when Pond, who had been visiting a friend, encountered the drunk trio, including Blanchard. They soon began to torment the mild-mannered Pond in front of a crowd that had gathered to watch and to be entertained. The harassment continued, and Pond was eventually struck with closed fists after he had refused to respond to their verbal threats and insults. Pond had been aware of Blanchard and company's animosity towards him since his daughter told him she had overheard the men earlier say they were going to whip him. Pond left the scene of the altercation that night without any further retaliation, escaping into the nearby woods as his attackers and bystanders together drank whiskey. Later that same evening, before Pond had returned home, the men forcefully entered his house and threatened his terrified wife and small children. July 19, 1859 proved to be a fateful day. Pond awoke around 1 a.m. to the sounds of Robillard ripping the shanty where Pond kept his nets in shreds. As the other two men that had confronted him earlier were beating on the door of his home, demanding that Pond come out. Pond was soon hiding under his bed in fear. His wife mistakenly opened the door, just enough to allow one of the men to grab her arm and squeeze it until she actually passed out, at which time the assailants left. Pond came out from beneath the bed and then raced to his brother-in-law's house and borrowed a shotgun. He then returned back to his home just before the men themselves returned. When Mrs. Pond refused to open the door, they went back to the net house and started to once again destroy the building. This time they also began to beat Dennis Call, one of the two hired hands that usually slept in the shack that also housed the nets. Pond, now wielding a shotgun in defense, offered several warnings to the intruders. But the assault on Call, who was by this time screaming from the attack by Blanchard and Plant, continued. Robillard was also still enjoying tearing apart the structure. Pond declared at least two times that he was, quote, armed and would shoot. Seconds later, he fired the borrowed shotgun that was filled with birdshot, the same birdshot that was found in the dead body of Isaac Blanchard the following morning. Pond, after hearing that he had killed Blanchard, wanted to turn himself in at Beaver Island to avoid the power influence that the deceased Isaac Blanchard's father held as justice of the peace on Mackinac Island. But as the boat carrying him approached Beaver Island, they were intercepted and Pond was taken into custody and then transported to Mackinac Island. He entered a not guilty plea based on self-defense, defense of others, and defense of one's property. The main issue with Pond's defense was the fact he had killed Blanchard while Blanchard was still in the adjacent shack that was used for storage of both his supplies and for housing his workers, not in his family's main residence. The trial court specifically instructed the jury that, if possible, the defendant had the duty to retreat. Pond argued that he did not have a duty to retreat because the net house was part of his dwelling. The court refused to give the instruction because the attack was not on the defendant's dwelling occupied by his wife and children. Pond was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years hard labor in Jackson prison. Not a great fate at that time. Fortunately, Pond's attorney 
immediately appealed the case to Michigan's Supreme Court and based his main case on the question as to whether or not the net housing was a dwelling or part of the dwelling of Pons. The Supreme Court concluded, yes, it was near the other building and was used not only for preserving nets, which were used in the ordinary occupation of Pond as a fisherman, but also as a permanent dormitory for his servants. The fact that the building served as the residence for Pond's workers was a major tipping point in the case. On May 19th, the landmark ruling was announced. Michigan Supreme Court Justice James V. Campbell wrote a historic decision overturning the original conviction. Justice Campbell stressed, human life is not to be taken lightly and not lightly disregarded, and the law will not permit it to be destroyed unless upon urgent occasion. Justice Campbell also wrote, he believed Pond's situation to be just such an occasion. His conclusion then continued with, a man is not, however, obliged to retreat if assaulted in his dwelling, but may use such means as are absolutely necessary to repel the assailant and to prevent his forcible entry even to the taking of life, unless he can otherwise arrest or repel the assailant. And if the assault or breaking is felonious, the homicide becomes at common law justifiable and not merely excusable. Another part of Justice Campbell's conclusion was very, very specific to Pond and probably doesn't transfer so much to this day and age. It stated, a building 36 feet distant from a man's house used for preserving the nets employed in the owner's ordinary occupation of a fisherman is in law a part of his dwelling, though not included with the house by a fence. Augustus Pond was found not guilty under appeal and released. Originally, he was to be retried, but he died four years later, never having seen the inside of a courtroom again. The legal precedent and boundaries that were defined in the case of Pond versus the people have since been considered in similar cases across the country and even throughout the world. Although the name Augustus Pond has long been forgotten, the catchphrase coined during his trial remains ubiquitous. A man's home is his castle. I'm Christopher Struble, and this has been another episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. If there is a topic you'd like to hear more about, or if you are an expert in any of these topics of Michigan's unique history, please find us on Facebook and share your thoughts. Please join us next time as we continue our quest for more history and tales of Northern Michigan's past.